You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our series in 1 Timothy called Gospel Culture in God's Household. And we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 13. Now the Bible teaches that there are two official offices or positions or roles in the church. Offices that are meant to abide as long as the church exists. They were created at the beginning of the church and are meant to continue until Christ returns. We looked at the first office last Sunday, the office of elder or shepherd or overseer. Um, That's the office that Tim and I possess in our church. The second office is the office of deacon, the office of deacon, and that is what we're gonna look at this morning. I'm gonna begin actually with a, a brief lesson on civics. You guys remember that? Civics and careers? Uh, If you know me at all, you'll know that I had no interest in politics until I actually entered law school and uh, was forced to study the laws of our country. And one of the most significant lessons I took away from law school was the practical wisdom that is built into our governmental structure in Canada. Our government is built on a foundation that depends on what you can call a division of powers. A division of powers. Power in Canada and in like-minded Western democracies isn't concentrated in one person or even one institution. Instead, there are three branches of government that each share political power. There's the legislative branch, which is made up of our members of parliament and our members of provincial parliament. There's the executive branch, which is made up of the members of cabinet. And then there's the judicial branch, which is made up of our judges, provincial and federal. Now, each of these branches of government have their own spheres of authority, and that's set out by the Constitution. The legislature makes the laws, the executive implements the laws, and the judiciary interprets the laws. But though they have these different spheres of authority, they also overlap to some degree, and the purpose of that overlap is so that each branch of government would hold the other accountable. The most common example, of course, is where uh, the legislature creates a law uh, and an individual citizen in Canada challenges the law by saying that it violates the Constitution. Now, that's what's happening in the United States often, where... uh, Governors and medical directors are imposing COVID-19 restrictions that are being challenged by certain religious entities and churches saying that it violates the First Amendment. And uh, in some cases, those laws are being successfully challenged. As the judiciary, this one branch of government, agrees that this other branch of government has created a law illegally. It's a very effective system and it ensures that no person or institution or branch of government grows too comfortable in its position of authority. Now, what about the church? The church is this institution uh, that has people who are in authority. Should the church have a similar division of powers 
to keep everyone accountable. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that to some extent that is true. In fact, when we reach 1 Timothy chapter 5, likely in a few months, uh, you'll see that the pastors, the overseers, those who are given authority by God over the church can be rebuked in the presence of all if they are sinning without repenting. But, some, but the question is, is the church meant to reflect the same kind of division of powers that we see in secular government? Well, some churches would say yes, and they do create a division of powers. You could say that they divide power between the congregation and the pastors and the board of deacons. Some people call it the board of elders, but many churches call it the board of deacons. You could say that the members of the congregation are like the legislature. They're, they're voting and they're creating laws. Okay, And then the executive branch is the staff led by the pastors. They implement the laws and they, they, they are in charge of the day-to-day operations of the church. And then there's the board of deacons or the board of elders and they function like the judiciary. They keep everyone accountable, including the pastors. Uh, they're actually the ones who hire the pastors and they have the authority to fire the pastors. They, they make sure that the laws of the church are complied with. Now, do, does a system like that work? Well, perhaps it does in some churches. I think it, it doesn't work in many other churches. But the question for us is, is if, if we are to be followers of Christ, Christians who want to follow the word of God, not just in our private lives, but in the corporate life of the church, the question is, is that system biblical? Is that what the Bible teaches specifically about the role of deacons? Are they, in some ways, the ultimate authority in the church to hold the other branches accountable? Well, that's what we're going to examine today. And uh, to let you know what my answer is up front, uh, the answer is no. That, that is not the role of deacons according to the Bible. They have a different role, an important role, uh, but a different role than what is commonly held within the church. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. I'll be reading from the ESV. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, the, the scripture text will be projected on the PowerPoint. First Timothy chapter three, verses eight to 13. This is the word of the Lord. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The title of this sermon is The Faithful Deacon. Remember last Sunday we looked at the noble pastor. Today we look at the faithful deacon. We're gonna have three points today. First, what deacons do. Second, who deacons are. And third, why deacons serve. First, what deacons do. Now, again, if you look at our text, even in a cursory manner, you'll notice that it actually says very little about what deacons are meant to do. We saw that 
Similarly, when we were looking at verses one to seven last Sunday in the description of overseers and elders, the, the majority of the text relates to who deacons must be. And it's meant to remind us that what the leaders of the church are meant to do is actually secondary to who the leaders of the church are meant to be. Character is more important than gifting every single time. Still, there are a few things that we can conclude from our text. The first thing is that the office of deacon is not a teaching office. It's not a teaching office. You remember in the qualifications of the elders uh, in chapter three, verse two, it says that they must be able to teach. That is because the elder office is a teaching office. They must study sound doctrine and they must develop and foster the ability to communicate sound doctrine to the church. But when you look at the qualifications of, an elder, uh, of a deacon, uh, it does not require that they be able to teach. And so we can infer that it is not a teaching office. Likewise, we can conclude that this isn't a governing office. You remember we saw the name of pastors or the title given to pastors is that they're called overseers. They're meant to keep watch over the church. They're, they're meant to look out at the church and make sure that it is healthy, that it is following sound doctrine, that it is living uh, according to godliness. Deacons, of course, are not called overseers, and therefore we can infer that they are not to be governing in the church. Instead, what we see is that deacons are to serve. They are to serve. They're not to teach, they're not to govern, they are to serve. In fact, the very word for deacon, diakonos, is literally servant. You could just read this, verse eight, you could say, servants likewise must be dignified. That's what it would say in the original Greek. So this isn't a teaching office, this isn't a governing office, this is a serving office. And we see that uh, reflected in our text. Verse 10 says, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Deacons are to serve. Now, you may be wondering, well, isn't that true of every Christian? Aren't, aren't all Christians called to serve, to be servants? Indeed, we are. We are meant to serve and to let our lives be characterized by servant-heartedness because we serve a king who served us. He is a servant king. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he, he descended from his high place on the throne of God and came to lift us up, to serve us. And he calls us now, if we are followers of Jesus, to follow his example. You remember in John chapter 13, when Jesus takes on the form of a servant, literally, he uh, dresses like a servant and he pulls out a bowl of water and he washes the stinking dirty feet of his disciples. He serves them and then he says this, he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Jesus was and is a servant and he was the servant of sinners, and he calls those who would follow him to be servants as well. Jesus also said as in Matthew chapter 20, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And in fact, the same word there for servant is the word for deacon. 
It's you must be, uh, whoever must be great among you must be your deacon. Even as the son of man came not to be served, that's the, the verb form of deacon, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so every Christian is called to a life of service. The life of the Christian is meant to be the life of a servant because we serve the servant king. We are meant to commit our lives to lifting others up, to carrying their burdens, and to humbly serving those around us. The same is actually true of pastors, okay? Pastors are called overseers, elders, shepherds, but they are also often called servants, Pastors are to be lead servants. Everything that pastors do, they are meant to do to serve other people. Whether we are equipping people, training people, teaching people, praying for people, we do it to serve. And so we, we see Paul often referring to himself as a servant. He calls himself the servant of the new covenant or a servant of God, a servant of the gospel. And whenever he calls himself a servant, He's either using the word for, for slave, doulos, or he's using the word diakonos, the same word that we find for deacons. So all Christians are called to serve. But that doesn't mean that we are all deacons, okay? That doesn't mean that we are all deacons in the First Timothy chapter three sense. In fact, the New Testament reveals that as the church matured, as it emerged out of its infancy, there developed an office, an official office for servants. That's implied in verse 10. It says, let them also be tested first. That means that they're serving. These, these, these Christians are serving in the church. Let them be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. They were to serve while they were being tested. And if they passed the test, they were to serve as deacons, provided that all the other qualifications were met. We also see in Philippians chapter one, verse one, as Paul is writing his official greeting to the saints in Philippi, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Both of the offices in the church reflected in that verse. All Christians are called to be servants, but only some Christians are called to serve as deacons. But if you've been perceptive and you've been thinking about what I'm saying, you'll, you'll realize that I still haven't actually answered the question. What are deacons called to do? You know, okay, we know that they're called to serve, but what are they called to serve in? How are they called to serve? Well, there's nothing in our text actually that reveals that. In order to answer that question, we actually have to look to a different portion of scripture in Acts chapter six. I'm gonna project the verses shortly in the PowerPoint, but you can flip there if you'd like. You remember the context. In Acts chapter six, the church is literally booming. It has gone from a collection of about 120 individuals to a church of 5,000 men and their families in the span of a few short days. And uh, the, the apostles, who are elders of the church in Jerusalem, had instituted a system that would make sure that, that no Christians among all those thousands of people would ever be in need. And so in the, by the time of Acts chapter six, we see that the church had come up with a method of distributing food daily to make sure that, that the needy were not in need. Uh, those who had much were able to share, and it was distributed daily to Christian families. But there was a problem. 
there was a problem. Acts chapter 6 teaches us that, that the Hellenistic Jews, uh, sorry, the, the Hellenistic Christians, that is the Greek-speaking non-Jewish Christians, brought a complaint to the apostles. And their complaint was that the Jewish Christians were neglecting the Hellenistic widows in the daily distribution of food. Now, this may seem insignificant and, you know, okay, all they need is, you know, a better organizational chart. You know, all they need is a little bit more organization. But, but this was really a pivotal moment in the life of the early church. Because the gospel had brought together Jews and Gentiles, individuals on opposite ends of the religious spectrum. It had brought them together into one common, unified community of faith called the church. And in this distribution of food issue, that unity was being put to the test. Now, the apostles, they recognized that this was a serious matter. So they don't put it on the back burner. Uh, they, They don't pretend that the problem isn't there. Instead, they have a church-wide family meeting, and this is what they say in verses two to four. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, that is, deacon tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will, who, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word." Now, this is widely understood to be the first appointment of deacons in the life of the early church. Um, it's, it's not seen as completely related to, to the office of deacon because we don't see these men being appointed to an official office. They're not being called deacons at this point in the church. And that was likely because the office didn't exist yet. It took some time for the role to mature into an official office. And so while we can learn a lot about what this text teaches us about what deacons are meant to do, we have to be careful to not over-apply this text and say that everything that we understood, we understand deacons to do now must be mirroring what we find in Acts chapter six. Now the main lesson we can take away from Acts chapter six is this that the role of deacons is to provide leadership to the church that would free up the elders to do their work more effectively. And the apostles or the elders in Jerusalem identify that work as being the ministry of the word and prayer. They are to study, teach, train, and they are to pray. And they are to lead God's people in prayer. That is the ministry of the elders, the ministry of the word and prayer. As they oversee the church, they're to let those two priorities inform how they use their time and what they devote their lives to. Now, feeding the Hellenistic widows was, of course, important, okay? We're not saying that what elders do is important and what the deacons do is unimportant, this was of crucial importance because if, if they were not fed, the church would have divided and the witness of the gospel as being for both Jews and Gentiles would have been compromised. The unity of the church and the glory of Christ was at stake. And that is why the standards for the men who would take care of this issue in the church was so high. Acts chapter six tells us that they were to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. 
The church needed wise, spirit-filled men to lead aspects of the church so that the elders could be released and freed up to serve according to their calling. And so we can say that deacons serve the church in whatever way they need to so that the elders of the church can do their jobs more effectively. Now, some church traditions narrow the scope of the role of deacons a little further. They say that we see deacons caring for the material needs of believers in the church. And so what deacons should do is they should care for the material needs of believers, just like they did in Acts chapter six. But I don't believe that the role needs to be that narrow. Because remember, Acts chapter six is, is not about deacons per se. It is the appointment of the prototypes of deacons Um, but it doesn't tell us everything about this office. I believe that the the role can include material needs, meeting people's material needs, but if there is anything that can be done in the church, anything at all that can release the elders to the ministry of the word and prayer, that work can be done by deacons. Now that helps us understand why the qualifications for deacons are so high. And that leads to our second point, who deacons are. Who deacons are. Now, if you look at the qualifications of deacons and you compare them to the qualifications of elders, you'll notice that there's actually significant overlap. There are some differences because they're different offices. We've already noted that deacons aren't to be able to teach. Deacons also, a lot of the kind of interpersonal skills of like not being quarrelsome, not being violent but gentle, being hospitable, that that stuff we don't see in the qualifications for deacons. But there is still significant overlap, especially when it comes to the, the inner life of those who would be called to serve as deacons. Many of the, the personal virtues are mirrored between elders and deacons. And so that, that shows us that deacons may not need elder gifting but they do need elder character. They are to be elder type people whose lives are worthy of imitation. Let's look at these qualifications briefly. Verse eight begins by saying they must be dignified. They must be dignified. And we see the same word in, uh, in, well, a similar word about elders in verse two when it talks about them being above reproach or respectable. Their lives aren't open to ridicule or to serious criticism. Instead, they they carry themselves with the dignity of a mature, godly believer. Second, it says they are double-tongued. They're not to be double-tongued. They're not to say something and do something else. Neither are they to say something to one person and say the opposite to another person. They're meant to keep their word. They're, They're not meant to flatter people to manipulate them to do something and then snicker behind their backs. They they are meant to say what they mean and mean what they say. They are not addicted to much wine, which means that they must be self-controlled people. They're not excessive. They they know how to enjoy God's good gifts. Like they, they can even enjoy wine, but they're not addicted to much wine. They know when to stop. They are careful to always conduct themselves in a self-controlled dignified manner. Next it says they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Similar to the elders, it says that they, you know, about the elders, it says that they must not be lovers of money. The deacons can't be greedy for dishonest gain. And so they they can't be serving the church as deacons for selfish 
goals. They're not using their platform to advance their business interests. They, they would, the, the, the last thing on their minds would be to take advantage of people for their own material gain because of their position. Instead, they are, they are content people. They are hardworking. They are committed to earning an honest living. Verse nine continues. It says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be people who believe in sound doctrine. They must be orthodox believers. There should never be a question that they believe what is true about the word of God and about the gospel. They, they may not be teaching sound doctrine, but they must hold fast to it. But verse nine adds that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, with a clear conscience. I think we all know what it feels like to know what is right, but to do what is wrong. For our conscience to be burdened, even though our doctrine is sound. When we believe what is right and we do what is wrong, that is not holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A, a clear conscience requires actions that align with scripture. Now, that, does, that doesn't mean that deacons could never sin. Of course they would sin. They are sinners just like any one of us. There would be times when they are burdened by a guilty conscience and they don't have a clear conscience. But when that happens, it, it doesn't take long for them to turn to Christ in repentance and faith and to cleanse their conscience and to align their lives with Holy Scripture. Verse 10 says they, they must also be tested first, uh, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Deacons are to be tested first. They are to be proven faithful with the small things before they are entrusted with the bigger things. And one of the ways that they're meant to be tested is in the home. You see in verse 12, similar to the elders, they're to be the husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. And they're to manage their children and their own households well. They're to be faithful husbands and fathers. Now, if you would boil all this, all these qualifications of deacons to one thing, it's that deacons are to be faithful people, faithful people, faithful in their private lives, faithful in their homes, faithful in how they serve the church. Even when they're asked to do the most menial tasks, they do so with care and attention to detail because it's those who are faithful with little that are entrusted with much. And I'm grateful that the, the one deacon that we have in our church, Hiram Chen, uh, he, he exemplifies this. He is faithful with the small tasks. He, he devotes his full attention to the details in order to serve other people. So Hiram, thank you for being a faithful deacon. Now we need to address verse 11. Verse 11 says, their wives likewise must be dignified, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this may seem like a relatively clear verse, but it's not. In fact, it's, it's uh, not, I wouldn't say a controversial verse, but it's which reasonable Bible-believing Reformed believers would disagree on. And the reason why there is disagreement is because the Greek word for wives is actually the same word for women, you could equally read this verse as saying, likewise, women 
Likewise, women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithfully in all things. So the question is, does it refer to the wives of deacons or does it refer to female deacons, to what you could call deaconesses? Now, there are good arguments for both positions. And as a church leadership, we haven't come to an official position on this, but I'm gonna give you four reasons why I lean towards a female deacon interpretation over the wives of deacons. The first reason is this. It would be very strange for the wives of deacons to have qualifications, but the wives of elders to not have qualifications. You remember verses one to seven? It was all about the qualification of the man. It said nothing about the qualifications of the man's wife. And if if any office is more important than the other, it is the office of elder. And so when Paul is planting churches, his priority always is to appoint faithful, noble elders. Because without elders, you don't have a church. You can have a church without deacons, so long as you have elders, but you can't have a church when you don't have elders and you do have deacons. It would make no sense that the wives of deacons have to be vetted, but the wives of elders do not. Second argument. The second argument for why this favors a female deacon reference is that the qualifications that we read about in verse 11, you could say essentially mirror the qualifications of male deacons in verses eight, and eight nine, and 10. He doesn't go into all the same details, but the categories he uses are similar. He says she must be dignified, which is what he says about male deacons in verse eight. He says that they must not be slanderers, which is similar to not being double-tongued. He says they must be sober-minded, which you could say is similar to not being addicted to much wine. And then he says they must be faithful in all things. Faithful in all things, including faithful in how they handle money and faithful in how they manage their homes. So it appears that what Paul is doing in verse 11 is he's creating an equal standard for female deacons, for deaconesses, as he has created for male deacons in verses eight, nine, and 10. Third reason. This takes us outside of our text, but I think it's important. There's a reference in Romans chapter 16 to what appears to be a female deacon. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diakonos, Same word for deacon in verse eight, a servant of the church at Cancrea, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, some people say that Phoebe here uh, wasn't a deaconess per se. She was just a servant in the more generic sense of of every Christian being a servant, okay? She's just known for her servant-heartedness. But I, I don't think that that interpretation is the best one because she is called a servant of the church at Cancrea. And whenever that, that, that phrase, of the church, elders of the church uh, uh, in other texts is used, is talking about elders of a specific church. They are appointed to serve that church for that church's good. And in the same way, Phoebe is identified as a deacon of that church. And by the way, deacon uh, it doesn't have a, a masculine and a feminine. It is, is a, it is gender neutral. So she can rightly be called a female deaconess um, as holding the office. 
even though that word deaconess is not used in Romans chapter 16. Also, her actions uh, in Romans chapter 16 match the actions and the role of a deacon. She was a patron of many. She was using her financial resources to support the work of elders, apostles, missionaries like Paul so that they could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Fourth, there's an argument from church history. There's actually a reference to two women in a letter written by a Roman governor sent to the emperor, uh, a letter that references two Christian women who are referred as deaconesses. And so in, in shortly after the time of the apostles, in the life of the early church, in the, in the early second century AD, we see women being referred to as deaconesses. Some of our historical heroes, believe it or not, like John Calvin and B.B. Warfield permitted female deacons. And many of our contemporary friends like Tom Schreiner, John Piper, and Tim Keller do the same. And so does this refer to the wives of deacons or does it refer to female deaconesses? I believe that the abundance of evidence weighs towards the conclusion that it refers to women who can serve as deacons. Now we need to remember that the only way that we can have female deacons in the church and comply with what the rest of the New Testament teaches is if we understand the role of deacons, the office of deacons, to be a non-teaching, non-governing office. Otherwise, having female deacons would violate 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So the the, the office of deacon must be non-teaching, non-governing if women are to serve as deacons in a biblically faithful manner. All right, uh, last point. Why deacons serve? Verse 13 says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is promising two things here for those who serve as deacons. Reward and assurance. Deacons who serve well gain a good standing for themselves. This could refer to good standing in the church as they gain the respect of their fellow believers or it could refer to honor before God that God will reward the faithful, servant-hearted works that they did in the church. Either way, it's clear that deacons, like elders, they do noble work. This is work that has lasting value. You're not gonna waste your time, waste your life by serving as a deacon. You gain good standing for yourself. Deacons also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They gain great confidence. In other words, they, they grow in their assurance of salvation. Because the more your life matches your doctrine, the more certain you can be that the gospel has transformed your life. You know, my friends, one of the surest marks of your conversion, that you have true saving faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you and that your heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh, is if you serve other people. Because we follow a servant king and Jesus didn't just command us to be, his serv- to be servants like him. He, he promised that we would become servants like him. Those who are in Christ, who are filled with his spirit, will increasingly mirror his life in their lives. Serving is noble work because it reflects the noble work of our savior, 
Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on, we're gonna reflect as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that Jesus' body was broken for us as our servant. His life was forfeited for us, for our sins. He, He served sinners by saving them from the wrath of God on the cross. He, he gave himself freely to free us from the power of sin. He lowered himself to us so that we could be lifted up to the Father. And so do you want to become a servant? Do you want your life to be characterized by humble service of others? Then know the servant king. Stay close to the one who, who didn't just wash our feet, but who washed our very souls. Our souls are stained by sin. Jesus washes us white as snow. We are made pure by the blood of the lamb. And as we grow as servants, I believe that God will raise up faithful deacons from our church. Now, when we were a smaller church, which wasn't that long ago, you know, a church of about 100 or less, we didn't have much of a need for deacons because we all knew each other. And all the practical needs that we had in our church were, were organically and naturally met. It took very little leadership for us to care for one another. But that's changed now. When you look out at the congregation on a Sunday, you're likely to see more people that you don't know than people that you do know. But what we need to remember that is that these are not just anonymous faces who are taking up space. Every single person here is a person with distinct needs and struggles and areas where we can come alongside them and serve them. Now, some of you will learn to serve one another naturally, but not all. Many needs will fall through the cracks. Many opportunities to serve one another will remain unknown and unaddressed. We need deacons. We need deacons to identify and address the practical needs in the church so that the elders may devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that elders don't have anything to do with meeting practical needs, okay? The apostle Paul himself was intentionally, eagerly engaged in raising up a special offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem, okay? He, he loved people body and soul, and when, when the Apostle Paul appeared before the apostles in Jerusalem, they affirmed his calling as an apostle, and then they, they said this in Galatians chapter two. They urged him to remember the poor, which he says was the very thing he was eager to do. Pastors must be servants, and they must care for people, body, and soul, but they need help, and they need the help of faithful deacons. We, we need to strengthen the office of deacons in our church, for the sake of our unity and for the glory of God. And so if you desire to serve as a deacon, you want to serve in the church to release elders to the ministry of the word and prayer, then I encourage you first to pursue membership in our church. In Sovereign Grace, we don't let you become a servant of the church before you've joined the church. But once you've become a member, you can then go through a period of testing where you find opportunities to serve others. You can find what needs are and see how you can help meet them. And if necessary, you can bring those needs to the attention of the pastors. We can come alongside you and help you. 
My friends, there are so many needs around us, especially in this COVID-19 reality that we live in. They're not all material needs. Some of them are social needs, personal needs. We can't meet all of them, but we can do our best to meet most of them. And we will do so more effectively with the assistance of faithful deacons. So let us commit ourselves by the grace of God to become a church that is characterized by service. Believers who love to be known as servants. We're part of the gospel culture of our church is that we serve one another. And let us pray that God would raise up faithful deacons, servants of the servant king for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us in so many ways, including in the offices of the church, that Christ is a servant king. And he wants his people, his followers, he wants his leaders to be characterized by service. And so we pray that you provide faithful deacons in our church. We pray that our church would be known for its servant-heartedness as we come to people in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and reveal to them the truth and beauty of our servant king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.